This afternoon I went for a walk. It was getting kind of late and the sun was quite low in the west and uh, it was so beautiful and clear this, this afternoon, today. And I walked down to the farm that's down and around the corner as you go down Lockwood Road and, and go to the left. Uh, down, down a ways there, there's a farm. It's up on a bit of a rise on a hill there and there's sense of space and openness that I enjoy there. And, and this time of the year, I've noticed in the last week or two, there are some uh, gatherings of flocking birds. Uh, I've seen starlings and I think sometimes blackbirds, although I think the blackbirds have moved on. Um, the ones I saw today, I'm pretty sure were starlings. And, um, and I love to see them gathering. And, and then late in the day, they gather in groups and sometimes in the trees. Today, they were in a few trees and and they all face the, they like to face into the setting sun. For some reason, they're all facing the same way. And, and the sun was low and quite a, a, a rich glow from that. And they were, um, they have kind of a dark, somewhat iridescent feather. And they looked like they were painted an orangey color in the sunlight. And they're very talkative. I, I think of them as talking about getting ready to migrate or something. And the route they might take or whether or not they're going to actually do it. And... There's some disagreement about whether or not to go. <laughs> Wait till tomorrow, it's so nice today. And there's a lot of bugs here at the barn to eat. And they all left the trees and, and perched in this row right next to one another on the top of the barn, all facing the same direction, talking and talking. And I love to see them. And um, some of those kinds of birds will sometimes gather in quite large flocks and maybe you've seen them. There's a name when they move, they move as a kind of unit. They look like a cell <laughs> or a, it's called a murmuration. One of those lovely words that somebody made up. <laughs> a murmuration. You can see films of them. Sometimes I've seen them posted on YouTube. And One time I was in San Francisco where I used to live, I was visiting a friend and I I had gone, I would forget what I was doing, but I was going down to catch a bus uh, south of Market Street on Mission Street to go meet my friend after work. And, um, and there was an open part of this a city block just right downtown in the very financial district, very busy part of San Francisco. And well, there's an open square there and there were two very large evergreen trees and there was a huge flock of uh, starlings or blackbirds or some flocking bird. Purple martins do it also. And they were doing this thing where they're moving around as a, as a unit and this stretching and coming together and it was so beautiful. And it was a big group, so it was in the thousands probably. And and almost nobody, all everyone was looking at their, their device, you know, going along, heading home, whatever. And there was one person who was filming them with their camera, phone camera. And, and one person saw me watching and said, was very worried and said, they shouldn't be doing that, should they? I was very concerned <laughs> that it was portent of some problem. <laughs> that they were, you know, and they, at one point they split into two. It was like a cell mitosis. They narrowed and then split into two and they were swirling around. And they, and the two groups, one group landed in one tree and one in the, in the other. And they were, it was late enough, they were getting ready to roost for the night. And it was, it was so fantastic. 
like, you know, the best possible performance art piece and the sound of them as well. And almost nobody on these busy streets saw that. It was very striking to me. And sometimes when I see these blocking birds, I remember uh, today I was thinking, walking back of stories of when the, there used to be great flocks of passenger pigeons. Not that long ago, maybe about a hundred years ago or a little more when the last one uh, was gone. And they said, stories say that the flocks were so huge that it would darken the skies for an hour as they passed over. Can you imagine? And they're gone. And that wasn't that long ago. That's not like the dinosaurs. This past winter, I was, I had a time uh, to do some retreat of my own in a in Burma, where I've gone a lot for many, many years now. And I was in the upper, upper part of Burma at a little uh, monastery where I've had a long association, teacher of mine, and I've helped with a retreat there that was organized for Western yogis to come. And, uh, and my teacher there, Sayadu Lakana, who was very dear to me, and he, he passed away about a year and a half ago. So it was my first time back after he had died. And um, I was able to arrange to do my own period of retreat for a couple of weeks there. And um, so it was just a self-retreat. There was no one else um, on retreat. It was the usual monastery life. So a lot of activity and the young novice monks chanting, learning the, the, the texts and things that they memorize. And, and in the mornings I would climb, it's, it's in a hilly area and, and the compound there goes up, winds uphill and there's a path, series of paths that go, went up from my little hut where I was staying to a, a temple, a pagoda that was built some fairly recently within the last 10 years or so at the very top in it of the compound and I would take a broom and I'd go up and I would sweep the and it's some sweeping after breakfast is kind of what everyone does at the moment everyone's sweeping so I would sweep and that it just happened this is the first year I've noticed this there were these flocks of uh, cranes saurus saurus cranes they're quite giant um, if one were standing here they would be as high as a human, as one of us. They're huge, and I don't, so their wingspan is quite, quite large. And uh, these flocks of them would come overhead, over the top of the hill, and they would be up high enough that they were not, they weren't flapping at all, really. They were just catching the, the things, and they would just go sailing out over the, the valley and disappear into the haze. And it was before sunrise, I would, I would, get up there in time to for the sunrise and I would uh, be sweeping and the sun would be rising and the cranes floating over and this they just you know cranes are there's images of cranes in Asian art and the it seems to be somehow they're they're tied into this sense of sort of spiritual longing or, or spiritual promise or something there you see them in uh, these images and ink and pen and ink and paintings and it would sort of, something about that, or seeing the, these flocks of birds, and it would lift me out of, out of my 
worries and, and my sort of ways that I would be caught up in my own internal world, my own sometimes very petty <laughs> stuff, <laughs> my grumpy moods or whatever it might be there. Lift me out of that. You know, and we take, I was thinking today watching the birds and you know, we, they'll, they'll be there up till the last, you know, they'll be trying, they'll be doing their best, but I, no matter what, how things go, but I, we need to be careful because we can take it for granted that they'll always be there. But they may not be if we're not careful. We tend to live our lives a lot in, you know, in our own minds and our thoughts and ideas. One of my colleagues called it a kind of thought-based reality in, in a talk. I, in this kind of way that we tend to live so much of our lives in that place. And we, we take it for granted. I think it was Winnie then in her talk recently asking, I don't know who it was. <laughs> some some something she was telling a story of someone oh teaching some younger people and saying you know are, are you your thoughts or something and they said yeah duh of course you know it's like that's that's we see things we we see through that we see and we take it for granted that it's the the whole picture but the as we see in meditation and and in the practices we do in a on retreat at a place like this, there's this this power and potential to take us um, to a different way of of uh, being in the world. Take us out of that, drop us somehow um, below or or to a different level. This direct connection to life, free of, or at least not seen through the filter of our all our ideas and. Um, about the nature of, about who we are, about the nature of reality. And and this can be, this is powerful and potentially tra- quite transforming for us to um, drop below this level of concept. And we have the possibility to see through self-limiting ideas that we may not have realized we're operating and and views that are often so woven into the fabric of our perception and how we see things that we don't see that it's operating there. It's like a filter, like a pair of glasses that we've put on that we don't know we're wearing. (laughs) And then we solidify ourselves in the world based on this view that we don't realize is there. And it can be limiting and uh, it can really narrow what, what we hold as possible how we see things. But meditation can open us to a reality that isn't limited in this way. Um, and, and the consequences, as I said, are profound for us in terms of the way it can impact our understanding and, and from that impact our life and how we are in the world. There's a beautiful quotation that's posted, I think, over at the retreat center. Many of you have probably heard or, or maybe read that. It's from the Tibetan... Uh, teacher Kalu Rinpoche said uh, once, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing 
and being nothing, you are everything. That is all. And I love this, this um, simplicity of that. That is all. When you see this, you see that you are nothing and being nothing, you are everything. And so this being nothing, it's not some kind of annihilation or non-existence or disintegration. It's not that. But it points to this letting go of, of, of views or ways of seeing that are limiting, that bind us to this limited and limiting perspective. You know, so often in life, I think maybe it's especially so in, in these modern times, we feel often kind of numb and disconnected. People report this a lot. You know, when I meet with people on retreat and disconnected from others, from the world around us. And it's often some, some relationship to this that can bring us to meditation or to something we might call a spiritual path or a spiritual search. It's an aspect of what motivates us at times. And, and it shows up in our language a lot and we speak about nature or the environment is, is out there. It's out there somewhere. We go out into it sometimes. Separate from us, other than us. I think this leads to a lot of problems, this sense of being somehow separated. And it's actually not true. This mind, this body, this is an aspect of nature. It's a part of the environment. It's a part of the landscape. We come from that. We are supported by it. We will return to it. We are not in any way possibly separate. And some part of us, I think some part of us knows this in a very deep way. Has some, some part of us that longs for that reconnection that knows this. This is a quotation from uh, D.H. Lawrence. I am part of the sun as my eye is part of me. That I am part of the earth, my feet know perfectly. And my blood is part of the sea. There is not any part of me that is alone and absolute, except perhaps my mind. And we shall find that the mind has no existence by itself. It is only the glitter of the sun on the surfaces of the water. There's a quotation that I I often use. I know some of you who've been around me have heard me say it because I love it. And I think it's probably not a direct actual quote. It's something I heard and I think it comes from Ajahn Buddha Das and it's probably not a direct quotation. But I know I didn't make it up. But someone, I think it was Ajahn Buddha Dasa, said, what we are doing with this practice is giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. And in a way, I feel like that is a, in some really essential way, sums up what we're actually doing in this. We're giving it back. Something that we mistakenly appropriated, laid claim to, separated, took out of nature. Because everything we can experience internally in the mind and body, externally in the world around us, is, is the unfolding of natural processes. That's what we're exploring here. 
or exploring this causation. I've been talking about this in different ways this whole month so far. And as we start to understand this, as this start to actually inform our lives, as we start to, to see this, we naturally give it back and there's this relaxation that happens with that. It's letting go of a kind of burden we don't, didn't realize we were carrying. And, and, and letting that go and giving this back, we open perhaps into the fullness, maybe this is the fullness of being nothing being nothing, one learns one is everything that Kalu Rinpoche spoke about. Maybe that's some key to, to understanding what he would be pointing to. Hmm. So <clears throat> all of that wasn't what I was going to give my talk about tonight. <laughs> so now I'll start my talk. <laughs> which actually begins with some chanting. And I was thinking about this, I thought, oh, there's a, this tradition, I know when, you, when we're in Burma, you'll hear discourses in, they, they broadcast it on loudspeakers. I thought, I, I was making a joke recently about putting loudspeakers up on top of the buildings here, which is what would happen there, and be blaring it out for all of Barrie to hear, <laughs> the town of Barrie, you know. I don't know that it would go over real well with the neighbors here, but in Burma, it's thought the more people who can hear, <laughs> the better, <laughs> the more merit. Of course, the fidelity is low, but the volume is high. <laughs> so, um, this I want to begin by chanting, maybe not the whole thing, but the first part of the Karaniya Metta Sutta, which is the Buddha's discourse on uh, loving kindness um, that is to be done. And this is uh, one of the most beloved uh, of the discourses of the suttas that the Buddha uh, taught. And um, I, I imagine it's chanted more frequently or as frequently as any other one of these Pali chants. And someone somewhere has probably chanted it every day since the time of the Buddha. Um, I remember reading an article where Andy Olensky, who's a Pali and Sanskrit scholar who teaches at the Berry Center Buddhist Studies down the road and um, he had done a, an analysis of the sutta and uh, he called it a jewel sparkling softly but compellingly through the centuries, which I thought was a nice description of this teaching. And so I know that uh, at least one of you knows this chant, maybe others. And I'll begin this evening uh, because it is traditional to, uh, before chanting uh, the metta sutta or other chants that are uh, in the category of what are called paritta chants, to um, I'll do that short uh, chant that is an invitation to the devas. It's an invitation for um, any celestial beings, tree spirits, and such who might be around to come and listen to the dhamma. And uh, you don't have to believe in them, but there's this inclusive nature. All beings are welcome and. Um, yeah, if there's any around, we'll hedge our bets and invite them in. Um, who knows? I had one yogi say, you know, when you do that chant, they do come. And she said, they, it's like the finest silk scarf being slowly waved through the air. That's what they sound like when they show up. So who knows? <laughs> Someone who had more sensitivity than I did. But we can suspend disbelief, perhaps. 
So I'll do the invitation to the devas. Anyone who knows that or the Metta Sutta chant may join me, please. And um, you can just listen to this, but uh, sometimes I think there's a power to hearing the teachings in the original Pali language. And the way I chant this, I learned this from a Sri Lankan man named Damaruan, who began chanting a lot of this and other chants when he was about two years old, spontaneously, <laughs> didn't, wasn't taught them. And uh, I learned this from him as when he was an adult. So it's a little more perhaps melodic than some chanting. Not the invitation to the devas, the metta sutta chant, but I'll just go right from one into the other. And I'm just going to do the first part of it up through the second sabesata bhavantu sukitata for anyone who knows it. Paritavanametam Sametabadanta Avikita chita paritam badantu Samanta Chakavalesu Atragachantu Devata Saddamang Munirajasa Sunantu Sagamo Katam Sagge Kame Charupe Girisikaratate chantalike vimane. Diperate chagame taruanagahane gehawatum hikete. Bhumachayantu deva jalatalavisame yakaganda banaga titanta santike yamunivaravachanang sadavome sunantu Dhamma samanaka lohayang badanta. Dhamma samanaka lohayang badanta. Dhamma samanaka lohayang badanta. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Karaniyamata. 
Tata Kusalena Yantang Santang Padang Abhisamecha Sakko Ujucha Sujucha Suvacho Chasamudu Anatimani Santu Sakocha Sumbarocha Apakin Chocha Sallahu Kauti Santindriocha Nipakocha Apagambo Kulesu Ananugindo Nachakudang samachare kinchi yena win yu pare upawadeum Sukino wa kemino hontu Sambe satamavantu sukitata Yekechi panabutati Tassavatavarava anavasesa Digavaye mahantava Majimarasaka nukatula Dittavaye vahadita Yechadure vasanti avidure Bhutava Sambhave Siva Sambhe Sata Bhavantu Sukitata So at least um, make a start at um, looking at the words of this teaching in the Metta Sutta. The the name full name is the Karaniya Metta Sutta. I said before, and this word Karaniya uh, is um, a thing that is to be done. The the Karaniya Metta Sutta is discourse on loving kindness, which is to be done be a translation of those words. And um, it's said that it was offered, it's considered to be a paritta or a blessing or a protection chant. And it's said that it was originally taught um, as a protection against fear for a group of uh, monks who had gone to a forest and um, a bit of a story there, I won't, won't tell tonight, but it was taught as a protection against fear. And it has a structure of a, and it has a structure of a poem, and kind of in three three parts in a certain way. It's organized in a threefold structure. It can be seen that way at least, and um, and that structure of of this teaching, in 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 a way, it can uh, be seen as paralleling uh, the eightfold noble path in in one way that that's organized organized and and taught, which is the trainings in sila samadhi panya. It's one way that that teaching is looked at. And the Metta Sutta uh, kind of follows this same uh, sequence and a, and a teaching on these subjects of sila, samadhi, panya in a way. And uh, the first part 
of the, the metta sutta addresses uh, the sila aspect of the training very directly. And um, the translation I'm using is one that was done by the, uh, the Sangha at the Amravati Monastery, the Ajahn Chah, Western Ajahn Chah lineage. And they did a translation. Um, it's good. It's not, so, it's not as literal as some, and it was in part made to be um, easy to chant. So I'm gonna, uh, I'll go through this, the first part of this, um, and I might as well chant it because I know it in English and they chant it this way. And, um, so you get to hear the Pali and the English. So I'll do, I'll do it that way, why not? Anyone who knows it, join me. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. These are the those first um, few verses there. And it really speaks directly to um, attention to how we're living. I'm enjoying this talk because it reminds me in, in, in Burma and in Thailand, they'll, the monks will talk and then they'll break into chanting for a while and then they'll go back to talking. And they're ones who specialize in it, you know, who are good at chanting. I, I'm not that good, but good enough. And uh, it's kind of fun to weave it in. I haven't done that before. There's a book that I really like by Thich Nhat Hanh called For a Future to be Possible. And it's a collection of essays. He did some and others uh, on the subject of, of uh, ethical conduct, sila, and various ways of looking at that. And, and in there, he, he calls them the five wonderful precepts, the, the basic precepts that we take. And he said, uh, this is a quotation from his book, from his essay in there, one of them, he said, the five precepts are love itself. To love is to understand, protect, and bring well-being to the object of our love. And the practice of the precepts accomplishes this. We protect ourselves and we protect one another. And I, I thought this was a beautiful way to hold the precepts, to see them as, um, as love itself, as an aspect of this quality of metta or loving kindness, that they actually... Um, there's a way that, that care in this way embodies that sense of, of, um, of caring for ourselves, caring for another. A beautiful way to see this as a, as a manifestation of this quality of heart, of metta itself. And this first part of the sutta points to the, um, the life of simplicity and renunciation that was practiced by the, the nuns and monks who lived at the time of the Buddha and it's, and it's, um, at least to some extent, it's, it's carried on through the centuries and still practiced by uh, many, not all. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff going on there. <laughs> but many monks and nuns, especially in this Theravada tradition, um, take on this very simple 
very austere by our standards lifestyle. They're dependent on daily offerings of alms to eat. They're not allowed to keep food past uh, overnight. They can't keep food past noon. If they're going to eat, then someone has to offer them something uh, every day. And they, uh, you own, a, I've lived that life for periods of time and you, you, what you own is a set of robes and a bowl. Um, that's, that's, those are your possessions. <laughs> Very simple. And so this the one stanza that we just chanted, the humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful, calm, wise, skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. So this, this uh, inclination, this um, pointing to a life of greater simplicity, of more uh, renunciation, of contentment with little, with what's offered and um, we can expand this, you know, care with how we live and how we use the resources that are there, how we live in the world, how much we really looking at how much we need and the difference between what we want and what we need perhaps in that. And, you know, we're a voracious species (laughs) planet wide. You know, we want all the best stuff. And we're good at getting it. And we don't leave a lot left over for other spe- other kinds of beings a lot of the time. And, you know, we have this economic systems that are based on continual growth as if that could possibly be sustainable. And, you know, we, we foul the air and water, <laughs> turn the landscape into a desert. And, you know, we wouldn't tolerate it. If those starlings I saw roosting on the barn were doing this, we would rub them out, as a, eradicate them if we could, as a terrible, terrible pest. We would not tolerate our own behavior on the part of another. <laughs> and I'm not saying this to make us feel bad, but there's something to look at there. <laughs> we, ex- we, we exempt ourselves from good behavior so much in the name of comfort or something. We're looking at this. What do we need? What do we need? We don't ask that question. What do, we, what do I need right now to be happy to, or to feel complete or fulfilled? And there's such a, there's such a huge industry that is, has as its basis this uh, getting us to feel that we're in a state of lack, <laughs> that we always need something. You know, this persuasion. But if we take a look, we may find that we don't need that much. The other day, I, morning, I was reflecting on this quality of contentment and what, what it is that might allow us to open into this sense of contentment. And we feel so much of the time we're conditioned to feel we need to get something we don't have. <laughs> but is it really true? It's a thing to look at there, how we live in the world. And then the second section of this, uh, of the chant, is then um, could be um, seen as related to the the samadhi, sila samadhi panya, the second part of uh, this training of the Eightfold Path, this uh, bhavana section, the section of, uh, it's it's called the concentration section, but it's the section of the meditative practices and the mind development, the things we do here in meditation. And um, this part of the sutta uh, speaks to this, and also in my in my experience, this um, 
the chanting of this is itself a meditation, is a practice of loving kindness. And so it describes it, but it also is, is a doing of it. <laughs> we're giving voice to these intentions, we're practicing it. And there's this tradition, you know, there's a chant that's done almost every day in some of the monasteries where we, uh, where there's a chanting of a reflection on um, the five aggregates in terms of their impermanent, selfless, coreless nature. And there's some, there's a power to actually um, giving voice to these things. Form is not self, form is impermanent. Feelings are impermanent. Perceptions are impermanent. Mental formations and consciousness are impermanent and so forth. And the same with the metta sutta giving voice um, in this way. So this is the second section. I'll chant it again. I'll do the one line from the last section to get, get it going. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. The great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. So that's where I stopped in the Pali chanting, that, that second, may all beings be at ease. So there's this wish and this expression and, and it, there's this, I love the inclusive and boundless nature, um, unconditional that's spoken to in this section, you know, goes in all of the metta chanting and, and uh, you know, the one that um, some of you were doing in the mornings here and there's all these, you know, just in case all beings doesn't get everyone, we go through like 12 other groups. <laughs> you know, like all beings seems pretty, it's hard to think of anything that's outside that. But just in case, <laughs> all living beings, all ones that breathe, all personalities, male ones, female ones, noble ones, ignoble ones, ones that aren't even born here in this one, near and far, large, medium, we have to make sure not to leave out the medium ones. <laughs> you look like a bunch of medium-sized beings. May you be at ease. All the medium ones and the little ones. May all beings be at ease. It's this inclusive, this pure benevolence of this generosity of heart, all beings. And there's no conditions on that. There's no exclusion on that. It doesn't demand that they be any particular way. We are any other ones. It's so great. Beings are seen as worthy of, of love because they are living beings. This is the criteria. And right now somebody is sending metta to all beings. A lot of people right now are wishing all beings to be happy and that's every one of you and that's me and every other being. And they're just putting it out there for the joy of it and for the, the beauty of that wish. So we're all pre-qualified as being worthy. And this is really important because so often we hold ourselves as unworthy, not worthy. 
We don't have to prove ourselves. And the Buddha spoke to this. He said, one could search the entire, all possible planes of existence everywhere in any possible sphere of realm of existence. And one would never find a, a being more worthy of love than oneself. So in the next section, the next verses, they shift a little bit again and in, in there's a sense, uh, maybe not so much the direct practice of metta, but uh, a kind of a, some reflections on some of the qualities that are developed and that are important, that are attitudes that are there. Um, so we'll chant that part now. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. So this section has a lot to do with the boundless, so with a boundless heart, outwards and unbounded. And there's this image of a mother's care for her child. And, and that some, I know for some people that has, I've talked to, that brings up, bring up a lot. So maybe we need to put in the words as a good mother would care for her child because uh, some, there are those who did not receive a mother's love. It was not their experience. But this is this sense of a mother's care. And there's an image that's uh, in some of the texts, there's, uh, the, the quality of metta is likened to a mother cow caring for her calf. And um, I think that that relates to the, the kind of um, um, pastoral and agrarian society at the time of the Buddha that, that he was living in, that was the way it was in that part of India. And, um, you know, we don't hang around with cows and calves a lot, most of us. Um, maybe some of you do. <laughs> live on a farm. I was uh, living as a monk for a period of time and I was staying at a, in a very small monastery up in the Sagang Hills uh, behind the monastery that I spoke about where the, I was watching the cranes fly over in another small place. I was living in a, in a cave there for um, not six or eight weeks. Um, on retreat, but I would go walk down every morning into the village for alms food. That was my meal. And it was very, I would, there was like these 
monks coming down from different places and we'd all kind of converge like little streams and then this small river <laughs> walking down into the village and um, me kind of with my tender feet. <laughs> I, I had tender feet. And you're not allowed, well, I could wear my sandals up to a point at the edge of the village and then I had to take them off. <laughs> and we'd go through the town and I was, I followed the same route every day. And um, I came around the corner and there was a, a cow and this brand new calf, like just had stood up and it was still covered with, you know, the, the afterbirth um, from, from the womb of the mother cow and she was cleaning it off and it was wobbly, just had probably just stood up a few minutes before I came around the corner. And, this, and I, it struck me, I thought, oh yeah, that's that image of metta being that such direct and tangible care there. And it was very striking to me at the time. There's this section has, as I said, this boundless uh, sense of, of the loving kindness in all directions. And, and then the reference on the last, um, the last line of, uh, it, in this translation says, this is said to be a, the sublime abiding. Um, often it's said the divine abiding Brahma Vihara, which metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka, these are called the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes, divine abidings. Brahma means godlike or divine, heavenly. And a Vihara, a Vihara is a place one lives. This would be called a Vihara in some countries, this place, the forest refuge. And, and there is this sense that when the mind and heart are suffused with this quality of metta or the other uh, Brahma Vihara's compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity. When it's when that's really uh, infusing the, the system there, then it truly is in that time for that time a divine abode. And there's the sense of um, connection and ease and f- fulfillment and a deep um, sense of ease and peace there when the mind and heart are really steeped in this quality. So. Um, I'll just touch briefly on the last part. I'm running out of time, but um, the last stanza is kind of the panya, sila samadhi panya, in that uh, laying out of the uh, relationship to the eightfold path, and and it's a the last it's the last stanza, last verse. It's really um, just one. It's one. It's not even more. It's one sentence, <laughs> a couple of lines in this part and it's a very different tone. It always struck me that's so different. It almost felt like it was stuck on there. But uh, I think it's actually an important um, part. So I'll I'll chant that now. Anyone who wishes to join me, this is how the Metta Sutta ends. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. There's a very different flavor there. And and it shifts away from uh, the practice of metta, the the description of the qualities there and, and to the, the, the potentially liberating, the liberating aspect of this practice. And there are many places in the suttas where the Buddha refers to the liberation of mind 
liberation of the heart through loving kindness, through compassion, through these other qualities of the Brahma Viharas. So there is this transcendent and liberating possibility, potential there. And in this part, there's the reference to, uh, it says the, the pure hearted one, which we could say in one way, we could look at that as, uh, is the fully enlightened being who has uprooted uh, the kilesas, the, the energies of greed, hatred, and delusion, that those are no longer arising in the mind stream. Or perhaps we could say, that perhaps they do arise, but they are, are, have no power. The mind is not in any way affected by them. Either way, we could look at that. So one who's brought the, the path to completion. But not only in that case, there may be times when we might notice this quality of pure-heartedness where those energies are not arising because they are not always there, are they? There are times when the mind heart is free of these and there's that sense of uh, some taste of what might be that uh, quality of the pure hearted one. And then description of some of the qualities of the, what we could call liberating wisdom. You know, it says by not holding to fixed views, not clinging to fixed views. The Buddha taught that views are these limited fabrications that do more to confuse our seeing and our understanding often than than bring clarity. So this also, um, having clarity of vision, not holding to fixed views. And there's all kinds of um, ways that we might think about in the way that, that views are spoken about, fixed or mistaken views. There's all kinds of examples, assumptions about ourselves or the nature of reality, as I was started out earlier in the talk, pointing to some of that, um, that are not reflections of the truth and that actually lead to stress and suffering and struggle for us. You know, ways we identify ourselves, I'm this kind of being, I'm, I'm a frightened being, I'm a confused being, I'm not worthy of love. There's something wrong with me or the ways that we, you know, you're like this, so you're always this way, you're this kind of person, these uh, views. Um, views of, of where we, we, the view of self, attributing some ongoing existence to what is essentially, in essence, a process. Views that we might hold about all kinds of things by not holding to fixed views Views fall into the realm of things that are, are kind of, the Buddha spoke about it in a, there's a, disc, uh, a teaching, the Brahma Jala Sutta. It's called the uh, Discourse on the All-Embracing Net of Views. <laughs> All-Embracing Net of Views. And, and there's all kinds of things in there, but there were these classic, at the time of the Buddha, there was this sort of religious, spiritual debate um, uh, that was really, a common way people got into these debates and there were these, there's, this is one version of these four classic questions that were asked a lot. Um, does the Tathagata, which is, um, you know, the Buddha referred to himself as the Tathagata, the one that's gone. Does the Tathagata exist after death? Does the Tathagata not exist after death? Does the Tathagata both exist and not exist after death? Or does the Tathagata neither exist nor not exist after death? Apparently, this was something people like to argue endlessly about. <laughs> There's a fifth question that they didn't ask was, does it matter at all? 
that question is not asked there. <laughs> you know, that, that doesn't lead anywhere. This endless kind of speculation does, has no bearing on understanding the nature of suffering, its cause and its ending. What does have a direct bearing on this is, is summed up in the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, that there is dukkha, there's a cause for it, there's a release from it, and there's a path that leads to that. And it points to this, this key understanding the Buddha saw. We have a mistaken view about what might lead us to real kind of lasting happiness, that some transient pleasant experience could do that. So this is a mistaken view that's widespread out there and in here too. <laughs> the view that, that something in the world that is of the nature to change and disappear can be used as a, as a source for lasting happiness or fulfillment or satisfaction. It's not that there's something wrong with pleasant experiences, but we, we have to be careful that we don't ask them to provide that which they are not capable of providing. And so the practice of metta and the meditation, but it's maybe especially metta, there's a way that it um, can directly address this mistaken view because it can open us to a kind of, what well, we could say a non-worldly kind of pleasant, um, fulfilling experience that is not born of, of uh, the sense, sensual world, not born of sense contact, but is, arises in the heart. It's, and it's a deeper and ultimately more satisfying kind of happiness. And it can help us um, turn towards um, something that might be a lasting kind of happiness. It turns us away from uh, this, this um, fixation on transient pleasant experiences helps us see through that mistaken view by uh, turning the mind and heart to a a deeper kind of non-worldly happiness. So I'll just wrap up with, um, let's see. One of my friends um, told me recently that she had changed her religion on on a Facebook page. She changed her religion. I guess you can say things about your religion on there. I've never, confession, I never looked at Facebook, but she put her religion as kindness in response to the Dalai Lama uh, making the simple statement once he said, my religion is very simple, my religion is kindness. And so she changed, she put kindness as her religion there. And you know, we hear this, there's a very famous quotation from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And it can sound kind of sweet, like something you'd read. Well, there's bumper stickers out there and probably greeting cards with that inside them. And, and we can dismiss it as, as just sweet and miss the profound understanding that is reflected in that, uh, in saying that. But I think if we, if we think of, when he uses the word religion, if we think that as the expression in the world of the deepest understanding, spiritual understandings, then we can get a sense of what he might have been pointing to. Because when the, uh, we can see um, the Brahma Viharas as the worldly expression of the deepest possible understanding that comes to us through, these, through the practice, through the meditation. When we really understand the empty nature of all things, when we finally maybe give it all back to nature in a certain sense in that image that I used earlier in the talk. Uh, 
when that's really fully integrated, then, then the response of kindness is the only thing that's there. It's just natural. There's nothing else that makes any sense. There's nothing else that arises. <laughs> when greed, hatred, and delusion, if they're not there, then, then that's what's there. We don't have to get that and put it in there. It's there already. So it's an effortless expression in the world of the liberated mind and heart, you could say. And then uh, the last lines, um, speaking to, you know, this the pure hard one, uh, being freed from all sense desires, this points to that uprooting of this craving that is the root cause of suffering. It keeps us bound to the endless cycles of of wandering in life after life. And the final line of the sutta, is not born again into this world, points to this, um, not born into, into selfhood, you could say. No longer appropriating that which is not ours to, to, to appropriate. So freed from this. So this is the, uh, I think it's great that this teaching ends this way. This is the thrust, the whole thrust of everything the Buddha taught. He said, that's what I want you to see. That's what I'm interested in, even in the Metta Sutta. So it's seen as an aspect of the deepest possible realization. So um, we'll end there. That's a good place to stop tonight, even though there's tons of great stuff you're missing. <laughs> but you can only take so much. <laughs> So uh, we'll end uh, this evening with the chanting, the verses of sharing and, or what do we call it? It's, it's actually the verses of sharing and aspiration, but it got called the. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.